Welcome to the Bridge in Theology podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Candace Smith, one member of the hosting team, along with Drs. Beth Stovell, Claudia Herrera Montero, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Mark Del Cogliano. Mark is an associate professor in the Department of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. He is a specialist in patristics and in early and late antique Christianity. He recently edited volumes three and four on Christ in the Cambridge edition of Early Christian Writings, published by Cambridge University Press in February 2022. Our hosts today are Dr. Kevin Hill, who specializes in patristic theology, and Dr. Claudia Herrera Montero, who specializes in practical theology. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to it, leave a rating in your podcast player, or consider sharing it with others through social media. And now on with the conversation. Thanks, Candice, and thank you all for listening. I'm Kevin Hill. And I am Claudia Herrera. Today, we are very pleased to have the opportunity to interview Dr. Mark Del Cogliano. So, Mark, thank you very much for being here with us. And we would like to begin with an icebreaker question. And uh, so if you could please tell us something interesting about yourself, most people don't know. So thank you for having me on the show, first of all. So this is the first one that I'm doing, so I'm kind of excited about that. So there's something interesting about me, which probably most people don't know, is that during the pandemic especially, I got into opera. So I was home with the family, and we were looking for things to do in the evening uh, after after homeschooling and all that. Uh, but my daughter, who like who was, uh, who was eight or nine at the time, saw me watching opera on my screen on computer I was like what's that uh, so so she had never been exposed to that and it became something that we did as a family um and so i really got into it myself and i really love it so i just uh i've just watched um all the operas of of um Verdi over the past year uh so, so that's something which i do but I'm not doing academic things. So important. Music is so important in our journey, uh, in our everyday life. And I'm glad a lot of people, I guess, out of creativity started listening to more music and also doing music from their homes. I This is not the first time I hear that. How interesting. Um, well, we're going to go uh, enter into questions of your own research, uh, which we are very interested to hear. In your own words, uh, could you please describe your research interest uh, for Christians who are not particularly familiar with patristics? Sure. Uh, so I classify myself as a historian and a theologian, so a historical theologian. So what that basically means is that is that I studied the kind of theological ideas that were found in the early church. 
So the, my own area like of interest is anywhere from the first century to about the seventh or eighth century. I've done most of my published work, like in research, um, in the third century, like through the fifth or sixth century. Keep me on that too. So, so the thing which I really like investigating is how certain ideas are born uh, and how they are developed. So what sorts of wrong turns they may have taken and uh, and how they got back on the right path, as it were. And just seeing all the kind of ups and downs and the kind of twists and turns that these that these doctrinal ideas take over the course of their history. So I guess if I were to describe myself like to uh, like to an outsider, I would say I'm like, I'm like an intellectual historian. But uh, for those more versed within the uh, um, with the kind of church language, I could say I I study doctrines of God, I study doctrines of Christ, um, I study doctrines of the interpretation of scripture. Uh, so I'm very interested in how certain passages of scripture get interpreted over time and how they get used, like in reuse uh, in different doctrinal debates over the centuries. So so all those sorts of things. That's a huge period to to be a specialist in. It's It's incredible. I know scholars devote their whole life sometimes to a single biblical book and you're you're spanning centuries and centuries and many many writers and texts and languages it's it's very impressive so how did you end up doing this like what's the story behind becoming an academic um so, so it's a kind of long story um i'll tell you a short version of it so as an undergraduate i was not trained in religion or anything like that i actually earned a degree in engineering electrical engineering and i was planning to be like an engineer or or a programmer. So, so the certain events happened in my life, and uh, I'll keep that part of the story short. But I decided at the age of 25 uh, to enter a monastery. So, so I was a Trappist monk up in Spencer, Massachusetts, St. Joseph's Abbey there. So it was around the time that I was interested like, in entering the monastery, and, um, and while I was actually at the monastery, that I became interested in the early church. And it was a kind of like a natural progression. I was um, like, I read some modern things and I said, oh, I wonder where they got the ideas from. And so then I went back to like the Renaissance and, oh, I wonder where they got their ideas from. And um, so back to the Middle Ages. So especially interested in the Cistercian Fathers, so that sort of period. And I, so I was like, well, I wonder where they got their ideas. And so I, and so I got back to the early church eventually and I didn't go back further than that. Uh, like I kind of found an, uh, like an era, era church history, which I really liked. That was my first encounter with the church fathers. So I read a lot from uh, basically the period that I still study from the first century to uh, probably seventh century or so. Um, so so I read widely in that period. It was also in a monastery that I, that I learned Latin, uh, learned Greek as well then. So I was doing it like just to like just to kind of read the text in the original language. That's the kind of person I am. So I was at the monastery for the seven years, and after leaving the monastery uh, for various reasons, I was like, "What am I going to do now?" You know. So I applied to the graduate schools. So I did my master's degree at Vanderbilt, and uh, I had a wonderful teacher there who so really steered me in a kind of doctrinal direction. Um, so that's when I applied to do doctoral work under Lewis Ayers at Emory University, um, who is one of the leading figures in 
the doctrine of the Trinity, Christology stuff in the, uh, in the fourth and the fifth centuries. So that's how I got into that period specifically. Mark, you just mentioned um, something that I didn't know, and I'm not sure but I'm uh, if, if you know this, but I'm fascinated about the work of the Trappist monk, American Trappist monk, uh, Thomas Merton. Sure, yeah, sure, yeah. You know, I'm fascinated about his, his writings. I know this is not uh, part of the question, but when you were in the monastery, did you, did you learn about his work or were you, uh, or did you have the opportunity to encounter his work uh, close to your formation? Yeah. So actually, so actually it was partly because of his writings that, um, that, uh, that so that I became interested in monastic life. Uh, um, and then while I was in the monastery, uh, I went through periods actually. Uh, so there were some periods where I would, I would kind of heavily read his works. And like in other times I was like, you know, so I'm living the monastic life. I don't need to be reading about it, you know? And so my interest went underwear, but he's like an old friend for me now. Like, um, I don't read him as much as I used to, but, uh, you know, very so often I'll pick up something by him. So it's like encountering, an old friend in a way. You're the editor of two major books coming out right now, right around when this episode will come out. And it's released in the Cambridge edition of Early Christian Writings. Can you tell us a bit about how the series came about and what the series' major aims are? Yeah, so this is a seven-book series. Um, so it's a team of four scholars. So it's Andrew Reddy Galwitz, um, myself, Ellen Muhlberger, and Brad Storen. So we all know each other from, from way back in the day. Um, and Andy got approached by Cambridge to do a kind of anthology series. And so they asked us to do a proposal for it. So we looked at what was out there in terms of anthologies already. Uh, and we found that they were very kind of narrow in multiple ways. So they were narrow in terms of the time period that was covered. They were narrow linguistically. So... So I mean by that, mainly focused like on Latin text uh, and also Greek text, and also narrow in terms of the theology. They were essentially narrating a story of the development of orthodoxy, and so we were interested like in a wider, a wider approach. Um, so our anthologies start in the first century. So these two volumes, for Tom doing, which are on Christ, it's a, so they start in the first century and they go through the eighth century, for example. So we also try to include lots of texts from other language traditions, so especially Syriac. So, so we have a lot of Syriac texts. We have we have not many, but we have a few fossil Coptic, Armenian, Ethiopic as well. Um, okay, we're not trying to narrate like a single story of orthodoxy, but we're trying to show the kind of range of opinions that one found in the early church. So that's been the approach, like of all the volumes, with my volumes, which are on Christ, while we have like, the kind of classic texts like the Cyril, like in fact, Nazianzus, we also wanted to show the Miaphysite um, tradition and the Church of the East tradition, which just developed. And, you know, so including like the so called heretics, as it were, right? Because they're part of the story of Christology, so the later tradition could deem them to fall outside of that, those bounds of orthodoxy. But it's a debate with those figures in which orthodoxy was fashioned, you know? So you need all the conversation partners that were part of the story. 
That is such a great approach because you're right. There's so many anthologies that just narrate the story of orthodoxy and exclude those other voices, which it does a disservice to readers. They don't understand the breadth and uniqueness of the thinking that was going on at the time. And you miss out on hearing why the orthodox thinkers reach sometimes the perspectives they did without hearing those other voices. And many of us, myself included, have have limited language abilities. Unfortunately, I can't read Syriac, for example. So having somebody be able to translate some of these texts that previously weren't available to English speakers, that's a wonderful service in itself. Yeah, great. Thanks. Do you think this would be a, a good uh, series then for for priests or pastors or or students interested in these subjects who maybe don't yet have a collection of primary sources? Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit um, about the whole series. Uh, the first book uh, is on God. The second book was on practice. The, um, the third and fourth books are on Christ. Uh, and the fifth one will be on community. So I think each of these volumes has a collection of texts on certain themes um, that are trying to illuminate the different approaches that teach these themes. Um, so like in a practice volume, for example, there's a bunch of texts on how Christians were formed as Christians in the early church. Um, and there's not one way that it was done. There are multiple ways it was done. Uh, and so, so I think for anybody like who's interested in um, any sort of retrieval of the early tradition or to just be, or just to kind of think with these ancient authors, even if they don't follow what they say exactly, but kind of you know, but just to see what the issues were back then and um, how they solved those issues, I think it'll be like a very good resource to do a kind of uh, historical ecumenism, maybe you know. So, so, so adding a voice to the conversations um, from history. What a wonderful resource as well uh, for future generations, for students uh, uh, beyond the the academic group of just professors or teachers. Uh, and I'm speaking about students and speaking about the younger uh, generations, I've been teaching for the past years uh, to college-age students and then during the past year, uh, high school students. So in some of my classes, um, in my theology classes, my students learn about uh, the church fathers, their life, what is a church father, who are some of the most prominent church fathers in the Catholic intellectual tradition? Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of their major contributions? For example, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, etc. So uh, I wonder, and I'm very curious uh, uh, to, to if maybe you could provide or give us some insight or ideas on how to creatively uh, teach young people, these college age, uh, um, high school generation, uh, about uh, church fathers and why do you think it is important to teach them about them? So I think an interesting thing about the church fathers uh, and the church mothers, there are a few of those at least, um, is that these these people like are recognized for a couple of things. Um, uh, so the most obvious one is their doctrines. So they taught something that that they taught something that that people who came after them thought could really express the essence of Christianity and were particularly good at at teaching, right? Um, but that's not the only kind of criteria, though. The other criteria uh, um, is a holiness of life. 
right? And uh, so they go kind of hand in hand here. Um, and so when I teach, I um, so I often introduce the biography of the person first. Um, now, in some cases, like we don't know that many biographical details, but a person like Augustine, like we know a lot of biographical details, right? And I think it's helpful for students to see that these were these were very much human beings who had struggles, who had failures, um, but in the end, with God's grace, they managed to to be these remarkable people. So, then setting their teaching in a biography, in the context of their own life, I mean, that might be something very. Uh, so it makes the person attractive based on their life story. And then, if you hook them that way, so they can say more about what they were teaching. Actually, the challenge that I find, like in teaching the church fathers, is that they wrote in a time and place that is much different from ours. So a lot of kind of translation has to happen. I don't just mean from like Latin to English, but the thought world they occupied, you know, and um, so it takes a lot of work. So I recommend kind of small extracts. Um, um, you know, kind of setting them in a historical context. So why are they writing these texts? Like, so what's going on? What are they reacting against? Like, who are they writing to? So all your typical, like, historical critical questions there, which we scholars, we know because we've been doing it for a while. But I think for a new person, especially, you have to kind of construct the world for them in which these texts can make sense. Uh, because if you if you try to extract them from their original world and just plop them down in our world, but they're not going to make much sense. Absolutely, I completely agree. We we talk about holiness all the time or saints yeah. uh, in the classroom, and they imagine the saints like these people, super holy, up there in a cloud or in a church, and they're like, "I said no, actually, look at the life of the saints. There were people like us sitting down on a classroom, perhaps a long time ago." And uh, there were people like uh, hung out like us, uh, ate like us, <laughs> like did the things that we do, and 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 just they just they fell, <laughs> they stand up. Uh, but uh, but there were people who were called to be more like Christ and follow the gospel and made something extraordinary. I'm very interested about you mentioned about the life itself of the church fathers before they had actually an important position, appointment, title or authority within the church, mm-hmm. or perhaps prior or during their formative years. So I'm interested to reflect about how their scholarship or intellectual process led them to a profound encounter with God. For example, St. Jerome uh, went to Rome as a young man to study Latin and Greek literature and had an early devotion to non-Christian scholars. And this education in the classics inspired him to continue his studies. Actually, when he was in Antioch, he had a vision that criticized him for his secular learning and for being a follower of Cicero (laughs) and not of Christ, etc. So he also started translating the Bible in Latin because the Pope told him to do so. But but later on, when the Pope died, he continued doing it because he was transformed by the process or in the process of translation. So would you be able to tell us more about what life was like for some of these prominent fathers, if you know maybe uh, one of them they before they became important figures? Yeah, so I think it's a hard question to answer because of, because of the nature of the evidence. Um, so I think someone like Augustine, like who wrote his own 
like for lack of a better term, photobiography, we have a really good sense of what was going on um, in his mind, um, at least as he presents that. I think for most other church fathers, uh, like we just don't have the evidence to really reconstruct the interior aspects of their life. So we may be able to do a kind of chronology of their life, but it's really hard to understand. Uh, so what were the exact motivations which so yeah so which might have led them from a secular life to a following to a religious life it was easier i think to to speak like in generalities because you get in the literature sense of what was important and um and what were the kind of struggles were and you can't really say this is true for any individual but you get a kind of collective kind of cultural understanding of what christians in the fourth century were were struggling with. So I think it's things like these. So there's plenty of evidence that for a lot of the church fathers, they had to struggle between a kind of secular career, so ambition to, you know, to make something of themselves in the world, um, and the sense of a Christian calling. And for them, it was an either or. So a person like who I've studied a lot as St. Basil, right? And so he had a promising career as a teacher of rhetoric, um, and he essentially like abandons that career, kind of similar to Augustine did too, right? So I think for a lot of them, the Bible made absolute like demands on them. Uh, so you think of the story like of Origen. So the life of Origen in Josebius's um, Church History Book 6. So it tells the story of Origen as a young man. Um, um, he goes to the church, and he hears the passage so in order to be perfect, you must sell all that you have and give to the poor. Come follow me. And he takes that really seriously. Like, and that's what. So that's exactly what he does. Um, so I think. So I think the issues like of of wealth and ambition were were a source of struggle for a lot of Christians. So I think that the flip side of this was was that the reality of of the marginalized, of the poor, the, the sick. That was a daily reality which they encountered. And again, I think that the demands of the gospel like are, like are equally equally clear on that. Uh, so if you want to be a Christian, so these are the people that you serve. And so these, these folks saw a life of gaining money and fame and power to be incompatible with the service of the poor and marginalized. Now, so that so that any individual case like is going to be different, but I think that those are some of the struggles that one finds in the fourth century. Yeah, I think you said that so well that to them they they heard that as either or, whereas many of us today, myself included, are trying to make a go of it as both and. Yeah, I mean, so you asked about the church fathers, and, and so these are the ones like who you know like who did see it as an either or, uh, and they made a choice like in one direction, obviously. Obviously, not all Christians like did that, and so probably the majority of Christians had to choose like a middle way. You know, um, they tried to be uh, as best Christian as they could in life while also raising a family. You know, but the thing is, is we don't have writings from those people. You know, so they are lost to history to us for the most part. So we lack the evidence like to really understand what sorts of struggles that they had. Well, we do have writings like from these elites, basically, who were able to articulate the kind of issues I just um, spoke about. So I don't want what I was saying to be skewed by the evidence. Um, that's always a challenge as a historian is you have to 
you have to know what evidence you have and then what it's not telling you either or for what groups of people it's not saying anything about. Speaking of people groups that sometimes we don't have a lot of evidence for, Claudia, I believe you have a question about the church mothers. Yes, yes. Um, I've always been been interested about uh, not only early Christians, um, I'm, I'm very interested about early Christians, <laughs> early disciples, um, particularly those that we don't know of <laughs> or those of the Apocryphas. <laughs> uh, but I'm also interested about, and I've been thinking um, since my formation in theology about early woman disciples. So I wonder if maybe have you thought of the idea of church mothers or perhaps those prominent female teachers disciples and theologians during the first eight centuries of Christianity who made an unofficial mark in the ancient church or early Christian communities. Is there research about these? Do we know some of these unofficial or perhaps unrecognized uh, female figures? Yeah, so there's a lot of research in this area going on right now, uh, and it has been for, uh, for a generation or so. There are a couple of problems here, right? Again, the nature of the evidence, right? The fact is that we have very few texts that were actually written by women. I can think of uh, Fajiria, who wrote a diary when she traveled to the Holy Land. So this is like a mid-fourth century text. So in the, uh, in the martyrdom of Perpetua, there's her diary, which is supposedly written by herself, but... That could be like a literary fiction note too, so we don't know if it's actually her diary. And um, maybe like a few other figures. The problem with studying early Christian women is that they are written about by men. So we don't have direct access to their own thoughts. It's always mediated through through a male experience. So as an example of that, so the Cappadocian fathers, uh, we know Basil, Caesarea and his little brother Gregory of Nyssa, uh, and they have a sister, Macrina, right? Who, in the dialogue on the soul and resurrection, which is written by Gregory of Nyssa, she is the main speaker, right? But the issue there is that it's not her speaking, it's her brother um, who's using her as a mouthpiece for his own ideas. So, so it's his understanding of her rather than her own understanding of herself. So it's very difficult methodologically, you know, to actually reconstruct a historical woman from ancient Christianity. There are too many barriers. So there's a famous article on this by by Elizabeth Clark, um, um, who recently passed away, called the it's called the Lady Vanishes, and it's about the methodological difficulties of writing about ancient Christian women. So the, what we can know about women uh, is more. So, so it's more on the cultural level, right? Um, so, so what are the expectations that um, that men had about women? How were they viewed, right? Um, it's very hard to uncover an actual historical woman. So, as hard as it is for men, uh, it's even harder for women, unfortunately. Wow! Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, you just unpacked a new world for me. <laughs> I am fascinated. No, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm truly honest. Uh, I'm fascinated about uh, early disciples like uh, Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Mary as part of the Apocryphas. 
But I'm definitely after this, uh, absolutely uploading this article uh, from Elizabeth and and as well as looking at those some names that you mentioned today that I've never heard before in 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 my formation as a in in seminary and as well as in during my doctoral studies. So thank you. I really appreciate for as a woman in the church. And as a woman is colored, I, I really appreciate for you to us uh, to unpacking this new whole world of uh, of of possibilities. Even if there were others who spoke on behalf of, uh, at least I am hopeful that there is research and and yeah. that's hopeful. Yeah, there's lots Thank of research you. out there, um, and so, so if you do some digging, you'll find lots of resources out there. And that sound means it's time for our intermission. What we do here is we ask a series of lighthearted, fun questions. So if you want an all-inclusive vacation to anywhere in the world, where would you go? So my wife likes to joke that I only go places where there are Roman ruins. <laughs> um, uh, and so there's plenty of places in the world where there's Roman ruins where I've not been yet. So, <laughs> so I would pick one of those. Uh, but so I think a next trip I would want to take would be to um, to Spain, probably. I, so, so, so I've never been to Spain. So that's my next kind of goal. What's the best compliment you've ever been given? I think like from students. Um, so if they so if they say to me after class, "Wow, that was much more complicated than I realized." then I think I've done well. <laughs> <laughs> we all teachers love these compliments. <laughs> uh, Mark, if you had to eat uh, one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? So does it have to be healthy or could I die from it? <laughs> I'm the kind of person that could eat pizza every day. Um, so if I don't, because I want to live, but uh, I could. <laughs> <laughs> What is one thing or activity or something that you like to do or would like to share when you are not teaching or researching or with the hat of a scholar? Right. Um, so we mentioned music earlier. Um, so that is something which I enjoy. Uh, so I play classical guitar. Um, so I've been playing for um, many years now. Um, and so that is my that is my daily um, uh so whatever the opposite of academic work is, that's the opposite of it for me. So uh, I, I usually spend like an hour a day practicing to kind of maintain my skills and um, I learn new repertoire and stuff like that. That's an important part of my life to have that balance between the, the, the heavy academic stuff um, and the music. Very cool. If you could interview any of the church fathers, what are a few questions that you'd ask them? This is going to be kind of like a boring answer, I think. But you know, I've spent I spent many years like studying people like Basil Caesarea and um, like and others. And there's questions I have which I can't solve by the evidence. So I'd want to ask them. So what do you mean by this? You know, or or what are you saying here? Or or you know, like what happened at this event actually? And um, so it'd just be, I'd just be trying to figure out all those questions, which I can, which there are no answers to as a scholar. <laughs> so. Let's go back now to our second half where we're going to ask some questions that are a little bit more practical on 
theology and okay. the church and spirituality. Uh, Mark, uh, what do you see as the place for Christian scholars in the body of Christ? This is a really complicated question, I thought, um, because there's two ways of answering it. So, so I think in the Catholic Church, so, so I'm Catholic, I think academic scholarship, especially by lay people, is not really fully integrated into the kind of functioning of the church because it comes out of a tradition where there was clerics, like um, who were the educated ones. And so, but the clerical authority and the educational authority all wrapped into one, that system had its own way of operating. But I, I think academic theology is creating a, uh, like a new form of authority. And um, I don't think it's been really well integrated into how the church functions. But so... So, so, so I think that there's tension there. So I think the way the so, so I think the way that a lot of us want it to function is to uh, is to be a kind of resource for the church's needs, right? So to be called on by the church hierarchy to uh, to provide expertise for you know for whatever issues are being faced by the church. Because uh, you know, because in academic theology, there is somebody like who studies everything, right? So if you're if you're struggling with how to educate um, the youth, you have a whole bunch of experts, like you know, like well, that's their area of expertise. If you're dealing with kind of moral questions, uh, so what should a Catholic response be to the uh, uh, the prison industrial complex, uh, right? There are lots of Catholic theologians like who are working like on those issues, right? So, so I think that we want to help the hierarchy. So I think the help it, like, is often not received. So more at a local level, though. Uh, so, so I think like in our own parishes, we can offer to teach um, for teachers, right? And so, so if there are people like who are interested in certain topics or in certain books, we could. Um, we could certainly, uh, you know, could lead those sorts of those small groups to enrich their own lives um, through a deeper encounter with, you know, like whatever aspect of theology. I know that when I talk to people about what I do um, and they're interested in it, and they say, "Wow, this is fascinating material that you know that I never learned that I never learned about before," and I want to read some more about it. And so, if any sort of enrichment like can happen that way. Um, so the, while we're academics and we're serving our universities, I think we're also at the service of the church in the widest sense possible, um, too. So, yeah. I love when people do hear about research into early Christianity and they get fascinated. Their, their eyes light up and they say, I, like you said, I, I've never heard that before. This is something new. Sometimes I found in my own experience, the reaction is less excited. Well, yeah. It, yeah. It's that kind of like, <laughs> they, they think you're basically like a, an archaeologist digging up uh, doctrinal bones. And uh, I think it can be really hard for churches to know what to do, especially local parishes, to know what to do with the church fathers, for example, especially in our modern world. Sometimes when they do engage with the church fathers, it's strictly with things like the Nicene Creed, uh, the Doctrine of the Trinity, and they don't explore the breadth of patristic theology. Would you say that there's any overlooked parts of the patristic heritage that could be beneficial to contemporary Christians or communities? 
Yeah, I think, um, so I think there's kind of three things that I want to say here. Um, so I think the first one that I'll say is, so, so I think the church fathers, like in that whole period, they took kind of contemplation um, with utter seriousness. So uh, so life of prayer, life of contemplation. So this was, this was a way of being Christian. Um, and um, a real seriousness about, about prayer and contemplation in one's daily life. And this was, and this was kind of washed into the kind of liturgy that they practice, um, you know, like in the structure or um, of the daily offices of the early churches. And then all this, and, and then all that gets kind of boiled down into um, um, into the monastic life, where it gets more formalized, of course. But the, what the monks are doing uh, is really not that different from ordinary Christians like are trying to do. They're just able to do it in a more kind of focused way. Um, so the whatever language that we wanted to use like for that nowadays, like a sense for the transcendent, sort of connecting with the divine, um, uh, so having so having meaning in life, having a sense that this life here is not the only thing. You know, so so you talk about you know like lots of ways. So I think that was a very much a big part of the early Christian experience. Now to say something, um, but quite opposite of that, which went hand in hand with contemplation, and that's the care of the marginalized and the fragile. Um, so I think the ancient Christians like took the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels um, message really, really seriously about the care of the marginalized, care of those like, who are most fragile in your society. That is the work of God, right? Um, so, uh, so now we call this kind of social justice, um, uh, like initiatives. Um, so, whatever you want to call it, uh, because that language can be off-putting for some people. But uh, the care of the marginalized or the care of the fragile—that um, was seen at the heart of being Christian. So, I think that those were the. Uh, Two sides of the coin of being Christian. It was because it's intensity about one's relationship with God and contemplation, but but at the same time, that was also uh, expressed in one's kind of care of the poor, the sick, the uh, um, and whoever. And we haven't. And we have like in our societies today, there are lots of people like who are fragile. And also marginalized for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, and I think the gospel is telling us that that's where our focus should be. I think that these are things which actually some Christians do very well. I think the churches in general could do better at them, um, like a fostering kind of both sides of that coin. There, has studying the ancient church and reach your spiritual life, what we were just talking about, contemplation and and the call of the early church to care for the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the sick, to bring good news uh, and what that's the gospel. So how how does this work have enriched your spirituality as a Christian? Yeah. Um, so so the short answer is uh, is. It has, yes. Um, it's something. It's something I don't really kind of think about a lot. 
uh, because it's the world in which I've lived for like 25 years now. So the why I got excited about studying the Church Fathers originally was because was because they had a vision of of human flourishing. Uh, you know, so I've described kind of some of those things with what the contemplation and the care of others. Um, but it's larger than that, though. And I've really, um, I've really um, absorbed that over the over the decades, like of studying this material. And because I'm a historian as well, so I have a very good awareness that things change and things develop over time, and that there are dead ends sometimes, and, and you have to go back and retrace your steps. So that things don't happen in a linear, kind of sequential way, either in the world or in your own life, right? And so the Christian way of speaking about that is that you're guided by the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and uh, you know that's not that's not a straightforward process. Um, so, so so I think discernment is not an easy thing to do. Um, I mean, I'm no expert at it yet, or I don't know if I'll ever be. But if I if I look back over my life and you know and try to make sense of where the Holy Spirit was guiding, I'll say, oh yeah, yeah, it seems obvious now. But at the time, you know, so the, you know, so that when I was 31 years old, like leaving the monastery, you know, I, that didn't seem like a right move to me, you know, um, but. But it really turned out well. So, so that sense of the sense of the kind of contingency of things um, and how they could be different, um, and not to get so worked up if things aren't exactly as you want them to be. Um, I think. Uh, so I think for me too. Uh, while I had an early sense from studying the Church Fathers of what the meaning of the resurrection is, and I think. Um, that was from my reading of the Church Fathers, but also being in the monastery, um, and this idea that that Christ has conquered death and sin, and they ultimately have they have no power over us. Um, that is that, especially like in difficult times. So that's a rock solid like belief I have that if I didn't have that, things would be a lot more difficult for me. I think um, so. Having that sense. Of, for the power of the resurrection has been a very uh, sustaining part of my spiritual life. Now, so as I'm saying all this, like I don't want to get the impression that I, you know, that I'm like an A plus Christian. Um, I'm I'm pretty average, or maybe even like below average. Uh, like I, I have a family. I have two kids. I have my hands you know, like a lot of endeavors with work. Um, I guess I'm ambitious in a sense. Um, so, uh, so I struggle with these things too. So, and I think so, uh, so. So I think the struggle is the journey. So, and if I don't manage like to live up to the standards I've set for myself or that I want to set for myself, you know, in one day or one week or a month or even for a year, I have a kind of a low year. Um, you know. So the Christ has conquered death. So it's all gonna, it's all gonna, all gonna work out in the end. That's beautiful, Claudia. I'll leave you with the last word. Well, thank you, Mark, for for your uh, scholarship, uh, for your words of wisdom, 
I've learned so much uh, today uh, from you, from your work, and I look forward to continue researching on new windows uh, that we have here. I am a person who takes <laughs> notes. I'm still a student. And um, and uh, I appreciate your time as well. We appreciate on behalf of Bridging Theology, we appreciate your time, your energy, your work, your gift to our church and to the academy as well. So thank you. So thanks for inviting me. Uh, so, so it was fun chatting with you guys. Uh, and I wish you good luck with the new podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgentheology.com. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player, review it, or share it with others. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.